Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Well, hello, wonderful people. How are you? Are you keeping warm? In this freezing cold winter, it is even freezing cold here in Queensland. I know it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Um, Before we get going on our second episode of our climate change collection, can I just say a huge thank you to people that are are doing the the rating and the reviewing on, um, particularly on Apple Podcasts. If you guys love this podcast and you would like to support it, like I don't do ads, I don't do sponsored ads, I don't do any of that. But what I would love is if you could go along and do a really nice review. And if you enjoy the podcast, a five-star rating, that would be great. I would appreciate that so much. Um, It really helps people to find this podcast. Um, Even this week, I had a young adult girl come along and go, oh my gosh, this podcast has changed my life. I can't believe I've just discovered you. I'm binge listening. And I get that all the time, which is great. But you guys doing that helps me. All right. So... Last week, we started a brand new collection on climate change. And so this is part two. And as I was writing this, my notes were getting longer and longer and longer. Uh, And so no doubt there's going to be at least another one, maybe two episodes, episodes on this. We'll see how we go. But let's just recap last week before we start on with today's topic to do with climate change. But last week we set up a biblical approach to climate change. And going forward, that is going to shape how we look at the rest of climate change in these episodes. So make sure if you haven't already, go back and listen to that. In a nutshell, the Bible does not back up a climate emergency. Uh, It says hot and cold and seasons will always remain. And that means that we do not need to be making any decisions out of that fear. So we should not be instilling that fear in our children through the education system. And we do not have to buy into fear from the media or from climate alarmists. How many times, I didn't say this last week, but I wanted to add it this week. How many times does God say in the Bible, do not fear, do not fear? For those that don't know, it's 365 times, one for each day of the year. Secondly, it's also clear that we are not to make a religion out of nature. God made this world, but we are not to worship nature or idealize it. God gave us dominion over the earth. Uh, And so, yes, we should look after it, but we are not meant to be making decisions that suppress human innovation. And finally, uh, the the third part of the biblical um, framework is that the Bible does support climate care. So I think if I could change every time I hear the word climate emergency, climate, uh, you know, crisis, I'd love to go, no, no, the Bible does say that we should be engaging in climate care, not climate emergency. We are to exist as responsible, benevolent people, taking care of the planet that God made and that he rules. So there should be a mutual respect. Now, guys, last time when I did this episode, I listened back And I noticed how many times I hesitated and how many times I said, um, and ah, and that is not like me. I'm usually pretty fluent and I know why I did this. It was actually because 
I knew that there would be some people who maybe would not like what I was saying. Um, you know, some people that maybe would put me in the climate denier uh, basket, even though I was setting up a biblical framework. Um, and I do get the occasional person who doesn't just—they dis- disagree with what I say, but they don't just leave it there. They go and do pretty predictable things like give me a bad review, which is just so immature. Like if you don't like something, just don't listen. Don't go and give that person a bad review to punish them. But I realized I started umming and ahhing probably for that reason. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that today. Um, Even though I was resolute in what I believed and I'm resolute in what I said, and I'm resolute that the narrative of climate change uh, or climate emergency is doing damage that I did hesitate. So I'm not going to do that today. Okay. Uh, I also wanted to say that, um, you know, God came to, look, I just said, um, (laughs) God came to save us. There is no, um, about that. And although he loves this world and he created this world, we know that it's going to be destroyed. Uh, I read the scripture last week before he comes back, not at the hands of man, but at the hands of God. And he did not come and die, send his son to die for the planet. He came to save people. So people over planet. Okay. And one thing that I'm concerned about is the unprecedented anxiety and stress that we are seeing in our children and our young people. So I've got an interesting stat for you on this, because as adults, we have a responsibility to our children and our teenagers. As leaders, we have a responsibility. Now, every couple of years, Mission Australia puts out a youth survey, and it's a very well-recognized, reputable survey um, that is used by all sorts of other organizations. And the latest survey that they put out really spoke into this area of stress and mental health of children and young people. And according to this survey, and I'm going to quote directly from this survey, during the past decade, it says, we've seen an increase in mental health concerns and issues for young people. The results of this survey highlight that to some extent, this is being driven by their uncertainty for their future, including climate anxiety, study stress, job insecurity, and experiences of social injustice and inequity. So for those of you who are of the view, climate change at all cost, new climate policies at all cost, maybe we need to stop and really look at what we're talking about here. Maybe we need to consider that for a moment, that the narrative that's coming across through media and government and education is so negative and so, um, you know, the the narrative is so uh, doom and gloom that it's one of the one of the top reasons for an increase in mental health concerns in children and young people. So I just wanted to highlight that before we went any further about talking about climate change. And when you consider that the Bible says that while we have a responsibility toward the earth, which I set up last week in Genesis, we actually have a greater responsibility to the people in it. And God talks about this. We specifically have uh, a responsibility towards the vulnerable, such as the poor, 
the widows and the children and the young people. So with this in mind, we are going to dive into today's topic. Uh, We're going to look at how can we do just that? How can we take care of this earth in such a way that it continues to take care of the people? And are the policies that the climate green people are trying to put in place, are they good for us? Are they good for people? Because every policy, every change that we want to make, every new proposal made should be done in a way that doesn't just benefit the earth, but it also, first and foremost, that it doesn't harm people. And that includes not putting our children into a state of fear with alarmism. So today we're going to dive deep into the number one thing being proposed, which is eliminating fossil fuels and establishing renewable energy, specifically solar and wind. We're going to pull those two things apart today. We'll see how far we get if we can fit it all in today, but we're going to look at fossil fuels. Then we're going to look at solar and wind and uh, we're going to we're going to be looking at all the things that we should be that we should be considering, like what what are the consequences of this climate plan? And as I say all the time, it's unbelievable that it's happening in other countries, and yet we're ignoring the result of what is happening in other countries that are ahead of us. So look at some of the the two examples that most of us would have heard about right now. Uh, what's happening in the Netherlands and what's happening in Sri Lanka. I'll go more into the Sri Lanka one either at the end or next week. But why are Dutch farmers protesting en masse right now? And if you don't know about that, go and look that up. Why did Sri Lankans storm their prime minister's house and run him out of the city? So we'll finish with that story at the end. But basically, he has been forced to resign because he has ruined Sri Lanka by doing exactly what we are talking about today. People are actually starving now in Sri Lanka because he's been on a fast track to eliminate fossil fuels in exchange for these untried, untested green climate policies. And what has it produced? Well, in Sri Lanka, we've got the world's first net zero refugees. So we need to be looking at things might sound good on paper, but in reality, how are they going to work? Or if we want to move towards these supposed cleaner forms of energy, then how are we going to do that in such a way that we are not harming people? Now, I am not against one or for the other. I'm a bit of a hippie girl that loves my um, my essential oils. I'm all for natural stuff, uh, but I'm also about looking into the wisdom of the plans being put forward on both sides and looking at what will the outcomes be. Because guys, to eliminate fossil fuels, let's start there. To eliminate fossil fuels is literally to eliminate our way of life right now. To be exact, of our energy right now is provided by fossil fuels. Now, for the people that go, oh, Renee doesn't give us the research like that silly person did on my reviews, uh, I'm not going to sit here and give you every single place that I get because I research so much. Most of what I say I've got backing and research for. So if you want a particular link to something, come into my DMs and ask me and I'll give it to you. But 84% of our energy right now 
is provided by fossil fuels. Okay, so we're talking about eliminating a form of energy that is going to change and impact 84% of our energy right now. So we've got to think very carefully about this. And I've noticed that the plans on how this is going to be done, and you can do this yourself. Every website I've looked at, the plans are really vague, like they're filled with these fancy words, but I can't work out exactly what it is that they're really trying to say. And it seems to me that when I think and do my own research that their plans actually have some massive holes right now. So I'm like, guys, how about we hold off and really uh, formulate a plan where we're really looking into the consequence before we, we start just slashing our energy left, right and center. So how you might say, how does our energy come, you know, 84% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. Let me break that down for you. Every industry, every, sorry, the energy industry powers every other industry that literally makes your life as comfortable and amazing as it is. So energy uh, powers the technology industry, the agricultural industry, the building industry, the medical industry, the transportation industry, the manufacturing industry, you name it, energy drives all of them. So what we decide around the energy industry is going to have massive impacts on humanity, on society, and on you and me. And sometimes we have got our blinkers on until we start to be personally affected. We just go, oh, what a great idea. But we need to pull these things apart because not only are we scaring children, we are starting to do things like, as you guys all know, Greta Thunberg, we're putting children forward as the pinup and the authority on this topic. And what is concerning is considering how much is at stake here, whole industries and the government are being informed by people like Greta Thunberg. So let's start there with Greta. Guys, have you heard of the Glastonbury Festival? I have been to Glastonbury. It is such a beautiful part in the UK. There is a famous yearly event in the UK and Greta Thunberg for a couple of years in a row now, she gets time center stage to spread her climate panic message. And I have to call her message climate panic because she does incite panic that we're going to have mass existential threat uh, extinctions and whole ecosystems are going to collapse and all that kind of stuff. So she warned, and I want to quote her at this year's festival, this is what she said, the earth was not just changing, it is destabilizing, it is breaking down. Now, what kind of a message does that send to kids when they hear that? Like, I hope she's really right about that before she starts inciting such fear. Like, on what basis? You guys say, where's my research? Where's hers? Like, on what basis is she saying such fear-filled things? Now, everyone cheers and claps and agrees, but this is where we have to start being discerning because while Greta is spreading her climate emergency message, have you not noticed that she's standing on a stage powered by diesel machines and fossil fuels? Can anyone else see the irony here? Now, the people, they cheer and they agree and they act like, yes, her message is crucial to saving the planet. And maybe it is. 
But meanwhile, guys, have you ever seen a photograph of what's left over? And I know there was a picture circulating recently and everyone was like, no, that picture was from a few years ago. But if you, I researched this as well. Um, I looked up what happens after and how many tons of rubbish is left at the Glastonbury Festival. There is so much rubbish that to be exact, 2,000 tons 2,000 tons, like what, what is an elephant, one ton? 2,000 tons worth of waste is left afterwards that a team of volunteers have to spend days cleaning up after them. Now, I say kudos to the volunteers, yay to the recycling team. But in reality, guys, for all the people that stood there cheering on Greta while she stood on the diesel-powered stage, nobody in reality there gave two hoots about Greta's message. Well, not enough to put their own rubbish in the nearby bins. And this is what we tend to see everywhere we go with climate change. If we can't even pick up our own rubbish, how are we going to get on board with what the climate policy makers are demanding of us? Or are we just doing what we're getting really good at doing, which is virtue signaling? Because in reality, a person's commitment to really making changes in the name of climate change Um, you know, for most of us, actually, this stops at the point where we personally have to make a sacrifice or suffer inconvenience or be made to be uncomfortable. And like I said, considering 84%, like I keep saying to you, of our energy is powered by fossil fuels, the majority of yours and my day is powered by fossil fuels. If that is eliminated, guys, for an energy source that might not be able to keep up to the same degree what is that going to look like? Like I did a, um, I asked you guys on Instagram, like, are you concerned there's an emergency? The majority of you said no. Uh, and then I said, what are you doing towards the climate? And everyone says the same things. It's all the things we were told to do in, in school. And, and while there's a really good element, really most of what we're doing is like recycling, trying to use less plastic bags, refusing plastic straws, walking every now and then, catching a bus more often. But in reality, those things don't really make us that uncomfortable. But when you think about all the things in your daily life that are possible because of fossil fuels, which I'm going to go to in a minute, let's see how many of us are really willing to change those things. So the statement that I, the most important statement of today that I want you to remember, because we're going to pass both fossil fuels and renewables by this statement is this. To the extent that energy is affordable, reliable, and plentiful, humans thrive. And to the extent that energy is unaffordable, unreliable, and scarce, humans suffer. That is fact. That is truth. Let me say that. I'll say the first part again. Basically, to the extent that energy is affordable, reliable, and plentiful, humans will thrive. So just think about that. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pass fossil fuels by that test. Are fossil fuels affordable, reliable, and plentiful? And what about renewables? Are they affordable, reliable, and plentiful? So, and then, and then based on that, if, if one is more than the other, and we're going to cause harm to humans, then I think before we make changes, we have to stop and think and plan it out. 
All right, so let's start with fossil fuels. So we know that from the last 100 years that fossil fuels are all three of those. Fossil fuels have proven themselves to be affordable up until right now when we're starting to get price hikes. Um, but that's not because uh, that the fossil fuels is not plentiful, but fossil fuels are all three affordable, reliable, and plentiful. Tick, tick, tick. That is why we've relied on them for so long. That is why humans have thrived. Fossil fuels are reliable and plentiful, especially here in Australia, where we have an abundant source of coal, gas, and oil. And fossil fuels are generated from these and available on demand, on demand 24-7. Think about it. Instant hot water, instant electricity, instant heating. Our fossil fuels provide for us on demand. And the reason is they're easily stored for whenever we need them. Now, they should be more affordable um, because although it's it's the energy, co- well, it's not even the energy companies, there's a whole heap of reasons for why prices are going up right now. Um, but guess who are the first people to suffer? Let's look at that. Guess who are the first people to suffer when electricity starts to become unaffordable? It is the people that are already on the poverty line. You think about the elderly who are struggling on small pensions with rising power costs. You think about the shortage in houses right now. That that is all over the news. There's shortage of rentals and houses because the building industry has slowed down. And then who are the first people to suffer? Well, the the people who own the rentals put the prices up and the first people to suffer, again, are the people that can't afford the the, the price hikes in rental properties. So people on the poverty line are going to be the ones struggling first, and it's completely unnecessary because it's not from a lack of supply. In general, we have thrived because the cost of energy, it is crucial. We need low-cost energy because if the price of energy goes up, because energy powers every other industry, then we get increases, which is what we're seeing right now in every other industry, in petrol, in food, in clothing, in shelter, in medical care. And if these things continue to go up, life can become catastrophically expensive. And it's doing great harm to those in low socioeconomic areas. And it's putting more children below the poverty line. So if we're going to make what in the past has been affordable, reliable, and plentiful, if we're going to start to make that, uh, we're going to eliminate that, then we better be darn sure that the new sources of energy are also going to be all three of those, affordable, reliable, and plentiful, which we'll look at soon. All right, so if we eliminate fossil fuels, let's look at the reality of what that might look like for you and me in our daily life. You think about it. Every item in our houses are made by machines powered by fossil fuels. Our house itself was made by the building industry, which is powered by fossil fuels. Uh, every bit of furniture, bedding, carpets, curtains, light fixtures, everything. We get up in the morning. It's cold at the moment. We put the heater on. Uh, fossil fuels. We hop into a shower. We have hot water, bo- water available to us instantly because the ability for fossil fuels to be stored. The water heats up so you can have instantaneous hot water. 
you wash your hair, you get out, you use a blow dryer, electricity, again, generated by fossil fuels, you have your breakfast, you use the toaster, the kettle, the fridge, all powered by fossil fuels, the food you are eating, all of the food harvested by machines, powered by fossil fuels. You pop your dishes in the dishwasher, powered by fossil fuels. You throw some clothes in the dryer before you um, before you go to work because you left them in the washing machine the night before, all powered by fossil fuels. And guys, I haven't even gotten you out of the house on your way to work yet. And then when we do leave the house, we jump into cars filled with petrol, more fossil fuels. We could go on and on. Try living one day without one single thing not powered by fossil fuels. I mean, when we have power outages, that gives us a tiny taste. Like my kids hate it if we have a power outage. They, they, everything they go to do, they can't do because the electricity is off. So our lives have gotten really convenient. And yes, do we have too much waste and consume too much? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, but do you really think that people believe in climate change that much that they're going to be willing to turn their lives inside out for it? I mean, are you willing? Should we be willing? And if our whole lives are driven right now by fossil fuels, is it a viable solution to completely eliminate fossil fuels in the next five to 10 years? And to do it for a source that actually has not been proven anywhere in the world yet, what would it look like to reduce and eliminate fossil fuels? I mean, it's one thing to consume less. I, I absolutely agree. But I think I don't know that we're ready to eliminate. Is that something that we're we're ready for? Um, all right. So um, are fossil fuels the enemy? Because what's happening is, and I'm not here today to argue about how many emissions this give and how many emissions that give. I just wanted to look at if we were going to just eliminate this one source in the next five to 10 years, which is what uh, all of the policies want to do. Remember I said that last week, it's not, it's not good enough to do it by 2050. They actually want to do it by 2030. Um, so is it, you know, is it uh, attainable and viable to do that? That's what we have to look at, regardless of if fossil fuels are good or not. Um, is it a viable solution? What are we going to be doing to our most vulnerable people? So fossil fuels have been made to be so much the energy that companies have dared not upkeep our coal-powered stations. And that's one of the reasons that we're seeing states being close to blackout. South Australia had a massive blackout in 20, might have been 2017 or 2018 um, over summer. Our coal-powered stations are getting really old. The technology is getting old. Their production is not as efficient because of it. And they're struggling to keep up with supply and demand, which is why we're going to, well, the Premier keeps threatening that we're going to have blackouts and the prices are going up. And one of the reasons is because of how loud all the climate activists have been um, have been shouting that nobody dares suggest that we sink millions or even billions into upgrading our current coal stations. I mean, there's certainly no mention of building new ones here in Australia, which is what we really should be doing if fossil fuels are to, are to continue supplying us with the levels of energy that we are used to. It's not as simple as, oh, let's just, you know, cut our use of fossil fuels and, and go to solar and wind. Like if we don't have electricity 
and we don't have a, a, a reliable, affordable, plentiful source to replace it, people won't be able to heat their homes. The elderly can die from that in winter. They can't cool their homes in summer. Like I said, it's the single mums. It's the those that are in low socioeconomic areas that are not going to be able to afford to heat or cool their homes. The agricultural industry will come to a grinding halt. Guys, that's food, food shortages. Without our ability to plant and harvest en masse using large machinery, many parts of the world would starve. How will we feed the world en masse? Like, are we going to go back to manually planting and harvesting? Weren't we on a mission to eradicate poverty just a few decades ago? There will be building shortages because we won't have the machinery to power, um, machinery powered to build homes. And like I said before, we know we're already in a rental crisis, and this is only going to get worse with fewer new homes being built. I mean, plus you've got to think about medical shortages. Sick people won't be able to get treatment from hospitals. Um, so when when we really break it down, if we don't have a good, tested, tried and true other option, alternative, then are we going to do more harm than good to people? Because it sounds really fancy to go to solar and wind, but what is the reality of this? Now, like I said, I'm not saying there isn't room to decrease our emissions, that we aren't over-consuming. I think we have heaps of room to consume less, waste less, decrease our use of fossil fuels, but at the same time is the answer to make the fossil fuels out to completely be the enemy and that this enemy must be destroyed at all costs. Now, as you've probably heard in the scheme of the world, our emissions here in Australia contribute 1.3% of the global total. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take responsibility along with the rest of the world, but considering that we produce 1.3% of the world's total of uh, carbon emissions, are we going to ruin that many people's lives for that? Um, meanwhile, while we are leaving our coal power stations to run on their last legs and putting no investment into new ones and having plans to shut down the ones that we have currently got, guys, guess what China are doing? They are building 43 new coal-powered stations right now, 43. So while we're busting our boiler trying to keep our 1.3% emissions down, China just don't give it on. While we vote for the Greens and sign up to the Paris Climate Agreement, China and other countries in Europe are doing no such thing. And why would that be? Because they know that in reality, cutting fossil fuels will lead to an energy crisis. So the agenda for them is not to care for the environment. I would say the agenda would be money. So in order for humanity to continue to thrive, the alternate solutions to changing our source of energy also needs to be those three words again, affordable, reliable, and plentiful. And are they, so we've, we've passed fossil fuels by that, are the new uh, sources that they are um, that they're giving as a solution, affordable, reliable, and plentiful. So we're talking about renewables. So it's awesome to look at alternatives. And I'm all for innovation and change and creativity in the way that we live. I'm all for more natural ways of living. 
Now, it's interesting we're only being being given two alternatives, which is solar and wind. There are other options like hydro or nuclear, uh, but solar and wind seems to be the main one or the only one that I'm seeing that they've got plans for. Um, And, you know, like I said, guys, I'm all for this. God made the sun. God made the wind. It's a great idea to harness the power of nature to produce energy. But again, we need to pass this by that test. Is it cheap? Is it reliable and is it plentiful? So let's unpack solar and wind. We're already at half an hour, but I don't want to stop. I think you guys will want to hear this. So we're talking about solar panels and wind turbines, right? Now, let's just think about something a little bit ironical for a minute. Guys, how are they made? How are solar panels and wind turbines made? I've done my homework. I'm looking into it. Guys, they're made by using fossil fuels. Little bit of irony just there. Solar panels are mostly made out of silicon. Where does silicon come from, guys? The main component is beach sand. And guess what? Converting sand to silicon comes at a really high cost and huge amounts of energy using fossil fuels. So very interesting that they're going to eliminate the fossil fuels. If they eliminate fossil fuels, they actually won't be able to make the solar panels. So you can't have your renewable energy for starters without fossil fuels. And then wind turbines are made out of steel and steel comes from iron ore, which is one of our renewables. How? By using, again, fossil fuels. Also, very interesting. China are building more coal stations while we're building less so they can continue to make the solar panels and the wind turbines that we then are going to order and um, and they're going to make for us. Also a little bit of irony. So they're building more coal power stations and they're the ones also making the solar panels and the wind turbines. So very interesting, even this thought alone. The Sydney Morning Herald has said recently that solar panels are a waste crisis waiting to happen, as are wind turbines. So they only last for about 30 years. Okay, got to remember that. The solar panels on my roof were part of the very big, very new technology like years ago. They don't even work. They're sitting on my roof looking ugly and they don't even work. What am I going to do with them? So what is the Australian government's plan for their disposal? They don't have one. Guys, can one of you find one for me? Can one of you, can any of you find for me? What is the Australian government's plan to dispose of solar panels and wind turbine, particularly wind turbine blades when they're not using them anymore? So The reason that it's suspected they don't have a plan is because it's actually going to come at a huge cost. So here we are trying to save the environment by making something that turns out to also be harmful to the environment at the same time. So while we're trying to save the environment, we're producing something that in another way is going to cause harm to the environment. So we made, for example, plastic bags to break down only to make millions of solar panels and wind turbines that do not break down. Now, wind turbine blades, and I don't, from my observation, when one wind turbine usually has about three blades on it, guys, one blade lasts 25 to 30 years. So that's great. You know, a lot of you, you're not going to have to worry about, you know, in your lifetime about changing these blades. 
But when they do stop working and they need to be replaced in only 25 to 30 years time, they need to be taken down, transported out and and stored somewhere because they don't break down. Do you know how big one blade is, guys? One blade is as big as the wing on a Boeing 747 airplane. I know, let that sink in. So when we take that one blade down, and remember there's at least three on one wind turbine, how are you going to get it down? What truck is going to be big enough? Where where are we going to store these thousands and thousands and thousands of blades? Like I'm all for wind energy, but guys, can we have a plan for what's going to happen? These monstrosities don't break down. Also, have you thought about how much land we need to put these wind turbines? And maybe we, you know, I mean, you can't just put them anywhere, guys. It's going to take acres and acres and acres of spare land. Who's going to pay for that? And by the way, it's got to be put in windy spots. So it's pretty ugly as well. Can you imagine? Would you like to have your house in a rural area where there's like hundreds of wind turbines? It's a little bit ugly. All right. Is it cheap? No. It's a huge cost to make them. It's a huge cost to dispose of them, of which we really have no plan. Now, it does, once the cost of making them and all that is up and running, apparently it does make the actual electricity cheap for us while we have them. So that's a bonus. That's good. But do you, let, me, let me tell you how much a wind turbine is. On average, a wind turbine is $1 million per megawatts, and the typical wind turbine is two to three megawatts, which makes it between two to four million dollars for each wind turbine, plus the additional forty-two to forty-eight thousand a year on running costs. Now, one a one megawatt is meant to be able to power a thousand homes for a month. All right. So one wind turbine we're talking about could probably power two to 3,000 homes for a month. And that sounds pretty good. But in reality, it doesn't come close to producing, by the way, it doesn't come close to being to producing energy 100% of the time because of changing wind speed, speeds. So this takes us in um, to the reliability of them. So where are we going to put them all? I've already spoken about that. That's really expensive. You can't just put a wind turbine anywhere. It has to be placed placed where it's windy. Um, I've also heard that they're noisy, but then other websites say that the new ones are not noisy. So how reliable are they? Are they? Okay, so we have to look at what's been done in the past. There is no freestanding solar and wind powered grid anywhere in the world. They are all backed up and supplemented by fossil fuel energy. Let me say that again. There is not one, not one freestanding solar and wind powered grid anywhere in the world. Every single one of them are all backed up and supplemented by fossil fuel. Why? Because they're not reliable. Now, we spoke before about changing wind speeds. So due to wind speeds, most turbines on sure will on average produce 30 to 40% of their capacity. So they're not reliable. When the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, we get no electricity and you can't store the electricity like you can with fossil fuels. Solar energy also fluctuates season to season, day to day, and even hour to hour. So neither wind nor sun are continuously available. 
So like I said, currently there is not a wind solar power grid in the world that is not backed up by fossil fuels. So they're not, they're not affordable. Well, their setup is extremely expensive. Um, are they, are they reliable? Well, no, they're not reliable. So the third one to test it by is, are they, are the renewables plentiful? So let's look at that. Well, the largest wind farm in Australia is actually here in Queensland at Cooper's Gap. And that began generating to the grid in 2019. And they've got 123 turbines on that farm, of which 50 are operational. All right. And so they power, they generate about 453 megawatts. So the power at the top capacity then would be 453,000 homes a month. But remember, the reality is that they only work at a 30 to 40% capacity, which brings it down to 136,000 homes. So it's not exactly plentiful because they don't give us energy all of the time. And the fact that they can't be stored also means um, that it's not as plentiful as what we are used to. So I think solar and wind could be options down the track, but they need much more work because if solar and wind were, um, you know, affordable and reliable and gave us plentiful energy, then we would be seeing solar and wind farms working in other places around the world. But the fact that there's not one that's providing power to a grid without a fossil fuel backup shows us that at this stage, we do not have uh, a really great plan down pat. So let me just, uh, on finishing... 40 minutes, guys, stay with me a couple more minutes. Um, I think, uh, let, let me read from this article. It says here, and I'm quoting, you might be shocked to learn that nowhere on planet earth does there exist a single community electric power grid that operates with only wind turbines and or solar cells. Without an equal or greater amount of fossil fuel power, usually natural gas or coal operating on standby 100% of the time, ready for the wind to slow or get too fast and the sun to stop shining, brownouts and or blackouts would be everyday occurrences. So that's what we've got coming if we completely eliminate fossil fuels and we just go to, um, to solar and to renewables. So I guess the upside to renewables, though, would be it would make each country energy independent, although Australia used to be energy independent till we started sourcing all of our energy overseas um, and not supplying our own people properly. Um, and it does, it would generate jobs in a new industry, but I think we've got a long way to go. So are we ready to totally eliminate fossil fuels before 2050? It doesn't seem that way, does it? Fossil fuels, sorry, have been made um, have been have been a great source of energy in the past because, or right now, because it is reliable, affordable, plentiful, and it supplies eighty four percent of the world's energy. So, what would be catastrophic is to abandon and eliminate that with a pie in the sky utopian idea that has not been tried, tested, or proven anywhere in the world. So it might be a great idea, guys, but it's not proven. It's not working anywhere. So, you know, can we work towards other sources of energy? Absolutely. 
absolutely. But in order to do so, what we need is honest debate, proper data, not a bunch of words on paper by supposed climate experts who are willing to tell us tell us what we must do and not do without ever having actually tried and proven it. So I've run out of time to go into the Sri Lanka, what's happening in Sri Lanka, where their government have signed up to these uh, eliminating of fossil fuels uh, and they've gone to organic fertilizers, which again, it sounds like such a good idea. I'm like, do I want organic fertilizers? Yes, so much better for us. But their country, um, they've got people starving right now. They've got people that stormed their their prime minister, their president's house, and he's fled to the Maldives um, because it hasn't worked. And so you've got desperate people over this. Pardon me. So, guys, that's where we're going to finish it. Longest episode ever. We've nearly hit 45 minutes. Um, but um, come back again for next week because I think there's just so much more to say about this. Because like I said, I'm not against at all looking at new forms um, and, and harnessing nature to bring in forms of energy. I think that's a really good idea. But we cannot we cannot do that before we're ready. We can't do that in such a way that it's going to bring harm to people um, when when God clearly says that we're to look after particularly our vulnerable. Okay, so, so much more to say. Come along, girlnextdoor.podcast and chat with me there. Uh, send me articles. Love it when you do that. And have a wonderful week. I'll see you Friday for Parenthood Friday. Sorry, there was no episode last week. I did not get time to record, but I'll see you Friday. Otherwise, next week for another episode of our climate change series. Until then, have a great one, guys. Bye.